Uh, well, as, as you've been tracking along here in our series, we have made it down to the, the final uh, covenant, the new covenant uh, inaugurated through Jesus. But today we are not going to really get into the New Testament much at all. We might reference something, but we're not going to be really in the New Testament. We're going to be dealing a little bit more with the Old Testament prophets. And before we even get there, uh, Greg, can you pray for us? And then um, our goal is to, remember, we've been, looking, we've been moving through the Bible storyline in light of the covenants, and we've jumped ahead a big time last week, covered centuries, and then now we're also going to be covering a, a number of centuries, uh, a bunch of centuries right now, a lot of Old Testament history and the prophets. So again, today it's more the Old Testament prophets, and then we're, they're pointing towards what Jesus is going to come do uh, for us and for his people. So with that, Greg, can you open us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you yet another gracious privilege to study your word, to consider specifically how we fit our Bibles together. God, we know that you are the one behind it, and so there is a unity, there is a plan, there is a structure, uh, there is a flow. Uh, and Lord, we trust uh, by your grace that we are uh, being faithful to that. Help us unpack it uh, even further today as we look at the prophets and their anticipation of Christ in the new covenant. Uh, Lord, this is such uh, holy and yet precious ground uh, for us as believers. Um, and so, Lord, help our faith to be strengthened, our grasp of Jesus and his work for us to be deepened, and our ability to know you, speak of you, and live for you um, just to be expanded in, in many ways. So, Lord, we commit our hearts and our minds to you in these few moments uh, please uh, just give us wisdom and understanding. Help Mark and I be clear. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Craig, we've been talking about these five overarching uh, ideas for progressive covenantalism. Can you again just read through these and, and, and give us a quick sense of what these are about? Yeah. Um, so again, we, we know these things, guys, but it's good to go back, uh, kind of, you know, know what, what's, what's the, the 100,000 foot space view of uh, what we're looking at here uh, when we think of progressive covenantalism. Uh, number one, the Bible is God's story. Uh, again, no matter what your persuasion of how to fit the Bible together, there's going to be no disagreement on that. Uh, secondly, uh, God's story is about God's kingdom. I think, too, in that, that statement as well, there's not going to be a whole lot of disagreement simply because the kingdom is so central to uh, what's going on in the Bible. And so when we start to ask, okay, well, what is God's kingdom about? God's kingdom, number three, is about God and his people. Um, I mean, it is that simple. I mean, God, when God made the world, uh, the climax of his creation uh, was the creation of humanity in his image. God created us to bear his image, to have fellowship with him, to represent him and to spread his glory and, and the garden of Eden that we dwelled with him in, spread that to the ends of the earth. Now, when we think about God's kingdom... How does it progress in Scripture? Where does it go? What takes place? That's number four. God's kingdom is carried, shaped, and implemented through God's covenants progressively throughout history. And that's what we've been arguing from the very beginning is starting in creation with the covenant that God made there. Um, each, covenant, each successive covenant is building on what came before it, hence the progress. And it's all going in one direction, which leads us to number five, where God's story, God's kingdom, and God's covenants are fulfilled in Jesus, in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return. And that's where we're almost to him. Okay, And, and as we get into the new covenant, uh, and the prophets this week, and New Testament, Jesus, and all that afterwards, we're going to see how everything dovetails. Everything kind of funnels down into Christ. Okay, um, But that's kind of the, the five points of progressive covenantalism um, again, just it's helpful to remember this is what we're arguing for. This is what we're aiming at. That's good. So if you remember last Sunday, we looked at this uh, overview of biblical history, and uh, we jumped from the time of Moses' death and Joshua and the conquest through the judges into the United Kingdom. Remember Saul, uh, David, and Solomon. And we ended with David last week. This week, we're going to be jumping through this next part, which is essentially overviewing this enormous period of history where we move from the time of Solomon uh, after Solomon, the kingdom splits, and then there's the final exile from Babylon uh, for 70 years, then the restoration with 
uh, Ezra and Nehemiah that we talked about in church a few months ago, and then there's the so-called 400 years of silence, and then the birth of Jesus. So we're going to be covering an enormous period of time here. We can only hit some highlights uh, as we go, and I'm just going to stay standing just for a moment to overview a couple things. So 2 Samuel, we ended here, 2 Samuel 7. Uh, David's early success, remember he becomes king officially at the beginning of this book, and then he's rising uh, to new heights. The Lord promises that he will always have a son on the throne, an eternal legacy. It will never go to another family or to another person, uh, as Saul's legacy was passed on to another family. Uh, That will not happen to David's. And then David's sin with Bathsheba happens, and then there's a lot of tragic later years for David. When 1 Kings, the next book of the Bible, begins, Saul has taken over as king, and Saul builds this, uh, excuse me, Solomon. Solomon becomes king, and he builds this amazing, uh, amazing temple for the Lord. And the first 11 chapters of, of 1 Kings, in fact, if you want to turn to a verse, turn to 1 Kings 11. It'd be a good place to be. Solomon, the first 11 chapters, they're not perfect by any means, but this is certainly a high watermark in Israel's history. Solomon is a man of great wisdom. This temple is one of splendor and gold and all these amazing things. The Lord is clearly present in 1 Kings 8. His glory fills the, fills the temple as it had filled the tabernacle at the time of Moses. And so you're seeing here, again, a high watermark in biblical history. And then is Solomon going to act a lot like Adam and Eve and everyone else? Yes, so second, uh, 1 Kings 11, uh, here's the beginning of that chapter. I'll just read a few verses. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Verse 4, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So after, this, after 1 Kings 11, if you look up on the screen, starting at 1 Kings 12, remember Rehoboam, Uh, The son of Solomon takes the southern kingdom, and Jeroboam takes the northern kingdom, and the kingdom splits. You have uh, 10 tribes go north, and Benjamin ends up going south with Judah, and they combine down here where the true temple of God is. They make a false temple up north. Remember Mount Gerizim, where the woman at the well would later be? And this is the rest of of, of the book of 1 and 2 Kings is all about switching between what king is here in in Jerusalem, most of them bad, what king is up here in in Israel, all of them bad. And so again, not to overwhelm you with information, you you know these names and kings. You you have a list here of all the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel listed there sideways, just to make it hard for you to (laughs) to be able to read. So all the ones in red are bad kings. You see a track record for the northern kingdom. It's universally 100% Bad. Every, every single king of Israel, the northern kingdom, fails to follow the Lord. Some of them are even worse, like Ahab and Jezebel and others. On the southern kingdom, uh, we have a few good ones. Uh, you can think of Hezekiah, Josiah. There's a few good ones, but are most of them either bad or in the middle? They, they put gray here for kind of a mixed bag of good and bad. Yeah, so the vast majority of kings are terrible throughout this period. But you can see here, the United Kingdom is brief, 112 years-ish. And then from, this is just something to think about. When you think of the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, it's interesting to note how much time is covered. 1st Kings covers a much smaller period of time. 2nd Kings is covering so many kings over such a period that it leads all the way to the time of exile from Babylon and the deportation. But that is the sad history of Israel, the kings not being uh, true to the Lord. Greg, I don't, I, any, any thoughts here just about when we read books like 1st and 2nd Kings and we see a lot of bad examples, wh- what are we supposed to be doing with these books? We read these books, what are we supposed to be looking for? How do we read them as Christians? Wh- what are some just basic tips here as we look at these books and we see a lot of people following idols and other things? Uh, one thing we're looking for, uh, and this goes back to uh, something we mentioned last week and we've mentioned throughout, is the, the promised seed. Um, you know, all the way back in Genesis 3, God made this promise that want uh, the seed of the woman across the head of the seed of the serpent. And we've been tracing that. It's been a, a central theme as well. Uh, central to the story is who is this seed going to be? Who is this, this uh, savior, this redeemer, this, this victor going to be who's going to come and overcome uh, all the wrong that's been brought into the world? And as we were seeing with the, the promise to David, like we, we were able to, to follow that theme to David, and when God made that promise to David about a dynasty that one of his sons would would sit on his throne, build a temple, and that he would establish his throne forever, we now know it's going to be one of the sons of David, the one of the in the kingly line. Uh, so, a king from the the line of David is going to be this seed, this one who's going to to fix things. And you know, in in terms of where they're at, 
if any nation is going to start experiencing that, it would be Israel. I mean, they've got the, the law, they've got the priesthood, they've got the temple, uh, you know, they've got the land, they've got all of that. And so it seems perfectly positioned uh, for it to possibly happen. And so, like you said, with Solomon, it's like, well, there's, there's a lot of potential here. And then no. And so as we get, we see kind of this up and down, um, you don't see any ups in the northern kingdom. You see some ups in the southern kingdom, but it's, it's still not a good trajectory. All it takes is one bad king to really poison the people. And even when you get a good king like Josiah, he might be able to institute reforms, but all he's done is external. It hasn't done anything to the hearts of the people. And so we, we, we realize we need, like we see some examples of good kings in terms of externally leading the people in the right way, but none of them can change the hearts of the people. And so it's like we need somebody who cannot just demonstrate the right way, but create the right way in our hearts. Because that's the problem all the way through is the hearts of the people. There's, and we're just like them. If we think, oh, I would never do that. We are just as prone to fall into idolatry and sin as are the people, as were the people of Israel. And so we constantly have this anticipation. We got to have something better than what we're seeing, even in the godliest kings, even in the godliest of kings. And Josiah was probably apart from you know, David's heart for the Lord. Josiah was probably the most wholeheartedly devoted king to the Lord. And yet all he could do was stay off sin and evil for his, while he was in office. And once he was gone, immediately, immediately, like the people immediately go back. And so we, we live in this kind of anticipation of we need something and someone greater and only God can do that. So the prophets come in. Okay, just keep watching the screen here. I'm going to switch sl slides, but it's pretty much the same thing this time, though, with the prophets. Uh, you can see here the prophets are going to be uh, at the same time pretty much as the kings. I mean, Samuel, of course, comes just before them, and Moses is the first true prophet. But you think of Nathan was prophet during David's reign. Remember that? And he's the one that confronts David. And then moving forward, Elijah and Elisha have to deal with Ahab and Jezebel, and you go on Jonah, and you've got Isaiah and Micah and Nahum. All these prophets come throughout the time of the kings, and they keep calling the kings and the nation back to the covenant with Moses. So when you think prophets, think, I've heard them called, uh, it's almost like lawyers for the covenant. They're coming out and they're making the case on God's behalf to say, listen, you guys made a, you guys are in a legal contract with Yahweh. You, you've made commitments to the Lord through the Mosaic covenant. You need to keep your end of the bargain. You need to stop worshiping false idols. You need to be faithful to the one true God. And so all the prophets are writing in light of the Mosaic covenant. That, I mean, that's the whole, I mean, they, they also, the Abrahamic and others, but they are especially calling them to the Mosaic covenant and and Israel continues to not listen and to rebel. So we're going we're gonna to jump in here with some points from the book from uh, Stephen uh, Wellam and uh, Trent Hunter. Uh, we want to walk through some points here about the prophets from sort of a 30,000-foot view. And uh, so, number one, the prophets share the same authority. This is important. They are all, the true prophets are all God's very spokespeople, the spokesmen. And uh, prophets speak for God. They are under the law covenant. Uh, and Moses was the first prophet who set the pattern for later uh, prophets. But these prophets are all speaking God's very words to God's people, and the people are accountable for how they respond. And, of course, many of them respond with violence and, and negatively to the prophets. Uh, point number two, the prophets share the same covenantal context. So the prophets speak in the... Can you read this, uh, this white part here, Greg? This, yeah, this part right on the slide. So, um, the prophets speak in the context of the law covenant, which prescribed blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. Although the prophets write at different times in relation to the exile, before, during, or after, the entire prophetic literature is written by men who lived under the old covenant after God's promises to David, but before the Lord fulfills His promises in the dawning of the new covenant. Now, I had to read this a couple times. Don't miss what it says here. It says, toward the end, it says, the entire prophetic literature is written by men who lived under the old covenant after God's promise to David, but before the Lord fulfills his promises in the new covenant. In other words, the prophets that have names in the Bible, like books named after them, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the ones, because Nathan doesn't have his book, uh, right. Elijah doesn't have his own book, but the prophets who have books named after them, those are all prophets that come after David, and they come before the new covenant and the, the 400 years of silence. So it's interesting to know where they are. They're all either before, during, or after the exile, and they're either warning ab about those kinds of things, the judgment from God. Uh, number three, can you read this one as well, Greg? Yeah. The prophets share the same assignment. Prophets showed up when the people were practically begging God to come and make good on his promises to curse them. 
Israel's prophets are the Lord's lawyers, covenant prosecutors, litigating the covenant established through Moses. They warn of judgment and exile, and they promise blessing for obedience and repentance. And can you read number four? Yeah. The prophets share the same perspective on the future. The prophets speak with a hope informed by God's promises to David and all of God's promises given through the biblical covenants. They warn of a future that is worse and better than anyone can imagine, the day of the Lord. We'll discover that God's promises come to fruition in two stages. So, Greg, a word about this. If you're just reading the Old Testament, it would not probably be clear to you that this is going to come true in two different stages. Right. A word about what's going on there, these two stages of the Messiah? Yeah, we've t- you've talked about this before, um, and I've heard a number of folks say it. It's, it's trying to get like the pr- prophetic perspective. Um, you know, and it's, it's, you know, the prophets are looking at things kind of from a distance. And so from the prophetic perspective, events that take place sequentially, maybe close together, far apart, they all look like they're at the exact same time, same moment. Um, it's, it's kind of like, and this is the illustration. I think it's a good one. If you're looking at a mountain range, um, you know, from far away, it looks like all the mountains are pretty much side by side. I mean, you know, you can tell some are taller or shorter. Um, but you're like, okay, they're, they're, they're kind of the same. And so, but when you get closer, you start to realize that that one mountain that you thought was next to this one, is actually probably miles and miles and miles and miles further away. Even though from the initial perspective, it looked like they were right together. Still talking about the same mountain range. It's just, you're starting to see the actual gap between the two. And it's not inaccurate to see them together and to describe them together from that perspective. Okay, it's just, it's not inaccurate. It's simply pointing forward to events. But as those events come, it's like you're getting closer. You start to see in reality, these events are actually some of them are further apart than you realize, even though they're connected, even though they're going to happen. They're all part of God's plan. That's that's well said. So this if you can think of a sermon from a few months ago, I don't even remember when it was I don't, a few weeks back. Remember John the Baptist doubt in Matthew 11? You remember that all came back to John not fully understanding this mm-hmm. very thing. Because John would read Isaiah, and Isaiah talks about the day of the Lord's salvation and the day of the Lord's judgment. And if you're just reading it, they appear in the same sentence, in the same verse in places in Isaiah. So what you're thinking is what? These two mountain peaks will happen at the same time. God is going to save and judge on the same day. That would be what you might assume. But when Jesus came, he comes to save, but does he come to judge the first time? No. And so John the Baptist is in prison going, wait a second. I thought you were going to bring the fire and judgment. Like you're going to come down, bring the, the, the winnowing fork is in your hand. You know, you're, you're going to separate the wheat and the chaff. You're going to throw people into the fire. You're going to bring judgment. And Jesus is going to do those things. But he's going to do them thousands of years after John the Baptist lives and dies. But John did not understand that there, there's a two-stage development. And it's only through the New Testament that we get clarity on that. Uh, nothing the Old Testament says is untrue. The New Testament simply gives further light and illumination mm-hmm. to this. And so that's the very thing that I think tripped John up for those moments in prison. And he, he of course, uh, I'm sure he trusted Jesus at the end. But Jesus goes, you've got to trust me on this, John. It may not be the way you thought it was going to unfold in time, but it is going to still all come true. Yeah, and it, it, I cannot recall the passage in the gospels it's where jesus is in the synagogue they hand him the scroll of isaiah he starts reading about the servant of the lord and he talked it ends with the year of the lord's favor immediately following that in isaiah it's about judgment jesus stops there and i think that's intentional like i think that's a clue that jesus is giving us that at least in this first coming judgment is not his primary purpose mm-hmm. judge uh, salvation is god's favor is and getting right with god um, and, and so we, we have to, you know, again, let Scripture interpret itself. And I know we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. But it is significant that, that Jesus, in that instance, he stops before that text quotes, talks about judgment, um, which I think fit, it, it's, it's showing that what we're saying isn't just some creative way to look at this. That's how Scripture itself is telling us to interpret it. Yes, so that's huge to know when we read the Old Testament prophets about Mm -hmm. this two-stage development. Can you read for us number five? I'll read number five. The prophets share the same diverse methods for communicating their message. Uh, They use words and sometimes act things out dramatically to call people to respond. We can think of all kinds of crazy things that happened in the Old Testament, but the Lord commanded them, and the people, the, the, you know, it might be Ezekiel laying on one side mm-hmm. for extended time, making a little fortification in a wall to represent the coming siege, uh, a prophet walking around without all of his clothes on to represent the fact that they were going to leave basically naked and hungry. I mean, on and on these things happened. They were vivid portrayals of the truth of what they were saying, and it was 
it was a grace of God to do something so out of the ordinary and strange that this grown man walking around acting in this strange way, it would call attention to itself yeah. and it would make the people think about it. And so that is actually an act of God's grace that, that the prophets were to act in those ways at times. Well, and Hosea is one of the most striking. I mean, it, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it should shock us that God calls this prophet to go and marry a prostitute um, and then have a family with her. And I mean, you think about what the kids are called. I mean, one is no mercy. One is, um, you know, you are not my people. And I mean, who, who wants to go into a marriage? I mean, seriously, you didn't, none of us, when we got married, like, okay, that's what we're going to do. Um, name our kids that. Um, but again, it, it's, it was unique to Jose. It was unique to that time, but it, it communicated the point in a way that few things could. I mean, the, we are to see God in Hosea constantly being faithful to a people who are unfaithful to him. I mean, you know, Gomer goes, mm -hmm. how many lovers does she have outside of, you know, how unfaithful is she to her husband? Um, and it's like, you know, God is like, do you see it yet? You're, you're the woman that Hosea married. Um, and, and, you know, that should shock us and wake us up when we realize, you know, the one of the, I don't want to say this, the most powerful picture of idolatry is that of of adultery. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's spiritual adultery on our against our God. We are as unfaith when when we turn away from God to idols. It's like a wife turning away for her, her from her husband to another man. Um, I mean, and it's graphic. It's it's an ugly picture, but it's like that's how 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 it is, and it needs to create in us the same kind of visceral reaction. Mm -hmm. Whoa, that's not a good thing. That's really awful. And for, for, her, for God to commit Hosea to go buy her back to himself yes. and, for, and, and love and forgive her, th that then later in Hosea, when Hosea has those moments, I don't remember if it's chapter 11 or 12, near the end of Hosea, it's that beautiful text where God talks about his judgment coming on Israel. It's just, it's just one thing after another of I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And it's just, it's pretty intense. And then it just in between verses, there's a complete change. And the Lord says, remember the passage, how can I give you up? Oh, Ephraim, uh, how can I give you up? He says, I, how can I treat you like uh, Zeboim and Abna, the two, the two cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah or with, mm -hmm. with Sodom and Gomorrah? He says, I, I cannot, my heart recoils within me. I, I feel this love for you. I, I will not give you up, Israel. I will win you back. And so Hosea, having acted out, buying back mm -hmm. an unfaithful bride, he then writes about it and it's going to carry all the more weight because he yeah. himself demonstrated what the Lord is going to do right. for his own people. So mm -hmm. I think that's a powerful thing. Point number six here, the prophets share the same tension. Uh, how will God fulfill his great promises, here it is, through such hard-hearted people? That's the question. The people are showing no promise, so how will God fulfill these promises through them? Israel suffers under the consequences of her chronic sin, but this also reflects the chronic sin of her leaders, uh, prophet, priest, and king. So how is that going to be resolved? And then number seven, which we want to expand on here for a minute, the prophets share the same message of judgment and salvation. So just remind you, I've said this before, it's not new, to, it's not original with me. Uh, the message of the prophets, pretty much all of them, is these three words, sin, judgment, and then hope. That, that is the primary message of all the prophets. And um, just to zoom in here, because we're going to spend some time with Ezekiel and uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Isaiah comes before all this, but if you remember on the screen here, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, their lives all overlap to some degree. It's fascinating because they're all in different places. Jeremiah is pretty much in Jerusalem up until the captivity, then he's taken to Egypt, but he's, he's pretty much in Jerusalem all the way up to the bitter end. And, and that's where Jeremiah writes from. He, he continues to warn the people all the way up until Babylon is at the gates, taking people out. Um, Ezekiel's ministry begins in his 30s in, uh, in Babylon himself, and he writes with visions from the Lord, also warning the people to repent and to turn back to the Lord. And uh, we'll talk more about him in a second. Daniel, you know, was taken out in that first wave of exile since around 605, 604 BC. And Daniel has a long life into his 80s, and he lives all the way through the 70 years of exile out the other side just a bit. And he lives his whole life essentially pretty much in Babylon after he's a you know early teenager. He lives the whole rest of his life in Babylon. But these three, it's amazing. Daniel, when he's out here, quotes the book of Jeremiah. How could that be? Because Jeremiah had written it a few decades before, and, and Daniel, toward the end of his life, can, can actually quote it because it's been passed around already. It's amazing how these things interconnect and interact with each other. So we're going to zoom in here a little bit on Ezekiel and also on Jeremiah, and uh, we'll reference Isaiah. So here we go. Um, here's the judgment aspect of these prophets that just comes over and over. Sin, judgment, hope. So judgment for sin. And there's the three things. Uh, deportation. So... Northern Kingdom is exiled by Assyria, Southern Kingdom later by Babylon that we're talking about. Uh, next, you have uh, desertion. 
God's glory leaves Jerusalem. And I, I got a picture here of Jerusalem, a modern picture, but I'll put a verse here with it to match. Uh, Ezekiel 11. If, you're, if you read Ezekiel, it's about chapters 9, 10, 11 ish. Right in there is when Ezekiel has a vision. And he sees, remember the crazy vision he has of the, the wheels within wheels and the chariot with a, so something like a man, a son of man on the top. And it's the glory of God leaving the temple. And this verse says, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, this city, um, and uh, stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So you can see here, we're looking pretty much east here to the Mount of Olives. And in his vision, he sees, now remember, that's the Muslim done with the rock. You know, that was where Solomon's temple used to be. So what, what Ezekiel would have seen was Solomon's temple was right where the dome of the rock is, at least right in that area. And he would have seen the glory of God in a vision come up out of the temple precincts. And it literally goes across the Kidron Valley over to the mountain east of Jerusalem, which is the Mount of Olives. And he would have seen the glory of God heading out. In fact, uh, it goes, meets him in Babylon. The glory of God comes and meets him in Babylon. So in a visionary sense, the Lord's glory has deserted, left the temple. God is, God is no longer in the Holy of Holies. He has left it to be destroyed by the Babylonians. So that's number three is destruction here on this list. And uh, Jerusalem is destroyed, as we said, in 586 uh, BC. So now we'll get to this, the theme of hope or salvation in the judges. Uh, hope for, uh, for sinners. So here are the three questions. Number one, who will come to save us? Number two, what kind of salvation will he bring and number three, how will he bring us, how will he bring this salvation to pass? So this is critical to what we've studied so far, especially last Sunday. The Lord is promised he's going to come save us through a Davidic king, through a son of David. And I just want to read a few verses. If you want to turn to Ezekiel 34, you can just flip there for a moment. This is a wonderful text about God uh, coming to rescue his people after their sin. Ezekiel 34, and I've got some verses on the screen. I won't read every word of each verse. God condemns the, the shepherds of Israel because they are leading the people astray, and he promises to be their shepherd himself. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 10, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. Skipping ahead, no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves, but I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. So referring to exile. Verse 13, I will bring them out and the peoples, uh, from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines, etc. Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my people, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Verse 16, I will seek the lost, skipping ahead, I will bind up the injured, strengthen the weak, I will feed them in justice. Now look at verse 23. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Greg, some words about how this might have been read at the time, and, and what's this idea of the Lord being their shepherd, but also a man being their shepherd, a son of David. Um, yeah, it, you know, it's one of those things, um, I, honestly, I don't know how they would have taken that, because it's like God saying he's going to be the shepherd, and then David's going to be the shepherd, and so like... Um, you know, what do you, what do you do with that? Um, and it, I think this is one of those places where it really, uh, helps us, um, see how the Bible fits together and how like later scripture interprets earlier scripture and helps us see where it was going. Um, and the reason why I mention this is some interpreters, um, not all, uh, but some interpreters will look at this and they'll say, well, this has to refer to the millennium. David's going to be resurrected and David's going to be king in the millennium. Like, so they, they literally think that David is going to, to be um, like resurrected and, and be like a major leader in the millennial kingdom. That's, where, that's how they take this. Um, you know, some of the dispensational camp, uh, interestingly, John MacArthur did not take it that way. He said this is Messiah. And I, th I think he's right on that. Um, it's because sometimes you will see Old Testament, like we said, one, one of the things it's not only we see all these events happening, but we see these different pieces being put before us. How are they going to fit? Like that, that's one of the questions. And I think it, it led to some of the confusion mm -hmm. and even difference of opinion um, in, in the New Testament era is people, some people, you know, they just had different opinions about how all this was going to come together at points. And so we look at this. God said he's going to be the shepherd. Then he said David's going to be the shepherd. 
Um, and then there's other places where it talks about, as we're going to see in Ezekiel, where it talks about, um, you know, the Lord will raise up someone from the line of David. And so it's like, well, what are we, to, how are we to make sense of this? What are we to think of this? Um, and, and, you know, I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit and kind of give us the, 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 you know, the answer to the puzzle. And then we can come back and make sense of the pieces. Obviously, this is talking about Jesus. He is both, because if God's the shepherd and then someone from the line of David is the shepherd, are we going to have two shepherds? No, we're going to have one shepherd, the one who is both God and man in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and again, like that's one of those things when and we, we really can't see that coming together until Jesus pretty much says that it is. Because what does he say? He says, I am the good shepherd. I mean, when we talk about John 10 and Jesus has that whole whole discussion about why he's a good shepherd, I think we have to have Ezekiel 34 in the background. You know, God's saying, I'm going to shepherd my sheep. I'm going to gather, um, you know, my sheep together. I'm going to protect them and, and all of that. Um, well, is it God or David that's going to do it? Well, yes, it's both um, in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I want to sneak in a New Testament verse. I was going to avoid that today, but I want to sneak a New Testament verse. This is from Matthew 22 when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. And let, let, just look at this. I think this is a significant uh, statement. So this is exactly the problem Greg is talking about. Is it going to be, you know, we know David is going to reign, but how great is going to be David's son? And Jesus brings this up. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? That just means anointed Messiah, son of David, the Christ, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So when they say that, what they mean is, they mean just a man. That's what the Pharisees mean. He's just a guy. He's just a man. He's a, he's a descendant of David. He's nothing more than a man. He's a special man, but he's just a man. And then Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, inspired by the spirit, calls him his son, Lord, saying, and he quotes the Psalm that David wrote, I think this is Psalm 100. 110. Or Psalm 110, yeah. thank you. The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I, put my, until I put your enemies under your feet. Now look at this. David wrote a Psalm, Psalm 110, and in that Psalm, under inspiration, because David, uh, Jesus says he's inspired, he's under the Spirit, the Spirit is speaking through David. David has two Lords in this verse in the Old Testament. The Lord said to my Lord. So David, how could David be referring to two lords? And, and pretty much people agreed, okay, this is, the, this is God and this is Messiah. Well, wait a second. David is calling someone who is his future son, his Lord. Why is that weird? In that culture, the son was always inferior to the father. In that culture, the father is always greater than the son. Dads don't call their kids kurios, Lord, in Greek. Dads don't call their kids Lord. So Jesus says this. If then David calls his own son, the Messiah, Lord, his Lord, how is he his son? In other words, how is he merely his earthly son? He's got to be more than just his descendant. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone else dare ask him any more questions. You don't want to get into a theological debate with Jesus, okay? You're, sure you're not going to end. It's not going to go well for you. So what is Jesus' point here? Jesus is saying, even within the Old Testament, yes, he's of course a son of David. He's also the Lord of David. How could Yahweh and the son of David be the shepherd of Israel? David's son is his Lord. David's son is God in the flesh. That's what Jesus is saying is contained within the Old Testament text. And I think that's an amazing, uh, amazing uh, reference there. Does that make sense for where Jesus is going there? So he's pointing back and saying Jesus is far more than, I mean, the, the son of David is far more than just a man. Let's look at Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, and uh, Greg, can you read for us the verses here? Verse, I think it's verse 5 and 6. 5 and 6, yeah. Um, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. And any, I mean, you've pretty much covered this, but any comments about what this text is saying? It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, again, the, the promised seed is going to come through the line of David, and God here is getting even more specific about what this seed is going to look like, who he's going to be. He's going to be righteous. Um, obviously, he's going to be from David. He shall reign as king. So there is the, the kingship aspect that God promised to David. He shall deal wisely. I think we can see he'll probably be wiser than Solomon in this. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell 
securely. And so he's going to bring about a salvation that lasts. It's a security mm-hmm. uh, that his, God's people are going to have. And then you get to the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That is so interesting to me that, he would, that that would be the name of this Davidic king. That's his name. Yahweh is our righteousness. And again, as we see in the Gospels and in the New Testament, what is justification but being declared righteous? And it's through when we put our faith in Jesus, we are united to him and he is the righteousness that God credits to us. Mm -hmm. His perfect life, everything about him that he did right is credited to our account. And so it's it's not just a prediction of some nebulous thing. In this case, it's literally true. In Jesus, the son of David, we have the righteousness that God requires of us. He himself is the righteousness that we need. And I can't help but think of the end of 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, it says, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, mm-hmm. that we might boast in the Lord. So again... It's going to be fleshed out more clearly as you go, but that's still an amazing sort of tantalizing promise here in the Old Testament time. So do we see Ezekiel promising a David who's going to save us? Yes. Does Jeremiah promise a a David uh, who's going to come save us? Yes. Uh, And there's a couple more verses we could just, I'll just flash on the screen. Jeremiah 30 verse 9, they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Jeremiah 33, verse 15. Again, he's called the righteous, uh, we already read that verse, the the righteous uh, branch for us. So, Who is going to come save us according to the prophets? The Lord is going to save us through the Davidic king. What kind of salvation will he offer? Uh, He is going to offer a final, uh, new, better covenant. And this is the key text, Jeremiah 31. If you can turn there, I know we're jumping in different places. Jeremiah 31, it's the only time the phrase new covenant appears in the Old Testament explicitly. It's certainly talked about in more places, but the the phrase new covenant comes only here in Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament. The New Testament will use that phrase several times. This is a a key text, of course. Let's start uh, in verse uh, 29. Greg, can you read 29 through, uh, through 33? 29 through 33? Yeah. All right. It says, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So, Greg, what are we hearing, especially verses 31 and following? What, what are we learning about what is coming in the future for the time of Jeremiah, the exile period? Um, well, I mean, let's just follow the language of the text itself right here. Um, the days are coming, declares the Lord, I will make a new covenant. Look at verse 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, so on and so forth, my covenant that they broke. I mean, we're in the prophets and we're in this whole theme of exile, judgment and exile and the need for restoration because Israel kept breaking the covenant that God made with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a perpetual problem. You'd have, like we said, there'd be some bright spots with some faithful people here and there, but it was never enough. The covenant itself uh, kept getting, kept, kept being broken by the majority, by the the vast majority. Um, There was always a remnant of faithfulness, but even the remnant of uh, the faithful, they were still sinners in need of something greater than what that covenant itself could offer. Um, And so God, knowing that, and I think as as we'll continue to see, um, it was never that old covenant was never intended to be permanent. Um, It had built into it an ending point because it could only point to something greater. It could never accomplish what was so desperately needed, which is full forgiveness of sins, transformation of heart, the ability to obey. All it could do was exert an, an outside pressure on the people saying you should do this and should not do that, but it, it didn't do anything to their hearts. 
And that was the fundamental problem. It wasn't, as Paul says, it's not that the law was bad. The law right. was good. The problem is with us because we're sinners and the old covenant could not create and enable the very things that it was demanding and commanding on a regular basis. And so God says here, he's going to make a new covenant that's not like that covenant. Okay? Because it's the covenant that they broke. That's where verse 33 comes in. He says, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law where? Within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And so keep, keep these two things kind of in, in tension here. Old covenant, yes, God, God, He writes that covenant, that law, on tablets of stone, and it's put in the Ark of the Covenant in a temple. It's all external to the people. New covenant, what does God say? I'm not going to put it in, 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 in some structure that man made. I'm going to put it in your, I'm going to put it inside of you. Like it's not going to go outside of us anymore. It's going to go inside of us. And then he says, I'm going to write it on their hearts. You think about it. You inscribe something on a tablet of stone. That tablet of stone is forever altered by the inscribing of whatever it is you've inscribed. So when God inscribes his covenant his, or his law on our hearts, we forever will bear that law as a part of who we are. It fundamentally changes us from the inside out. And that is what it's getting at here when he says, I will write it on their hearts. What's the result? Um, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, weren't they, wasn't he their God before and weren't they his people before? Yes, but I think we have to see this in a different light. It's, it's going to be a, a, a deeper, stronger, lasting relationship because it's a different covenant that's being enacted before God could stop being their God and they could stop being his people. But if his law is within them and it's written on their hearts, then they will fundamentally be different. And so the nature of their relationship with God will be fundamentally different. Before covenant could be broken, you could be cast aside. In this new covenant, we're already starting to see that's probably not going to be the case, and it can't be the case because it's not like the covenant that they broke. Well, that's good. So verse 34, let me tag that on as well. It says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Going with what Greg said, this is a fundamental difference with the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, the majority, were unfaithful throughout the whole of the, Israel's history. Here it says that every single covenant member is going to know the Lord in a saving relationship. Mm -hmm. It's going to include transformation of heart and forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. That is fundamentally different from the Old Covenant. So you're going to have complete, in terms of true covenant members in the New Covenant, everyone's going to be a genuinely born-again person. Yes. And that's going to be really important for some things we're going to talk about on future weeks yeah, uh, in, in this absolutely. regard. But I mean, in that last statement, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Think about the Old Covenant sacrificial system. There was always a, rem a memory of sin, always a remembering of our sin through the sacrifices on a regular basis, through the Day of Atonement year after year. Like there was always a bringing to mind the, their, their sin against God. So when God says, if it's not going to be like that covenant that they broke, it has to be better, it has to be permanent, it has to be better in every way. So when he says, I will remember their sin no more, we have to see in this that God's going to do something about our sin that deals with it on a permanent forever basis. I mean, you have to see that when you read this. Otherwise, we're going to have a covenant just like the one that they broke. But if it's not like that, then it's got to be something fundamentally bigger, something fundamentally better, and something that lasts and can't be undone otherwise. Like I said, it's really no different than the other covenant. Yes. So for the sake of time, I'm going to jump ahead. We'll come back to some of these texts on future weeks. Let me move on here. So the point number two is a new and better covenant will, will be the kind of salvation. Point number three, how will he bring this salvation to pass? And the answer is going to be obvious to us as Christians, but it, imagine this is the Old Testament uh, through a sinless, suffering servant. And I'm just going to jump ahead here. If you, if you have your Bible, uh, you know these texts, but turn to Isaiah 50, Isaiah chapter 50. And uh, Greg mentioned how when uh, Jesus shows up in Nazareth and other places, he reads about the, the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 42 and on. Well, this is one of those servant psalm, songs, and Isaiah 50 is amazing because starting in verse 4, it's talking about someone who is clearly going to be Jesus. Let me start reading in verse 5, Isaiah 50, verse 5. 
This is a sinless suffering substitute. So the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. So this individual is not like Israel. This is a righteous, non-rebellious, ultimately sinless individual. Verse six, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Verse seven, but the Lord help, the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know I shall not be put to shame. I wrote down in the margin here, Luke 9.51. When Jesus is determined in Luke to go to Jerusalem, it starts in Luke 9, and it takes many chapters for him to get there. Luke frames his gospel as a long journey from chapter 9 to Jerusalem. And in 9.51, what does Jesus say? He has set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's this verse from Isaiah. Set his face like a flint. Uh, that means like a rock, like, a, like an immovable, determined, I'm not going to change my mind stone. He set his face to do God's will. And Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, to die on the cross. And so he's clearly fulfilling this. But the specificity of his back being struck, his cheeks having the beard pulled out, him being spit upon and disgraced, it's as if, it's as if you're standing right outside of Calvary watching this unfold. It is so vivid. And then we know Isaiah 52 and 53, so I won't spend much time there right now. But just, just look at a few verses. Verses. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Here's the servant of the Lord again, keeps showing up. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Uh, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, I did a little work on this a while back to check. These words here, high, lifted up, and exalted. See those words in verse 13? Those words are only used in the rest of Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, for the Lord Yahweh on the throne, high and lifted up and exalted. Same words. So the, the words we describe God on the throne is now describing this servant who's about to be crucified, about to be killed brutally. What's going on? Clearly, this is Yahweh made man. I mean, of course, that would become clearer later, but that's what's going on. And we won't read all the verses. Let's just skip ahead here. Uh, look at chapter 54, I mean, 53, excuse me, um, verse uh, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse six, uh, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we could keep reading, but the point is clear uh, to go back to the question that we had here. According to the prophets, who will come to save us? The Lord through the Davidic king. What kind of salvation will he bring? It's going to come through a new, better, final covenant that's going to change all the hearts of his people. Number three, how will he bring this salvation to pass? Isaiah is so clear. Through a sinless, suffering servant who is our substitute, who dies in our place. And again, I know I quoted one New Testament verse, but we're not really quoting the New Testament today. But do you see how amazing this is in the Old Testament? You're going to have a Davidic king who is somehow connected to God himself, and he is going to come, the servant of the Lord. He is going to be sinless and not rebellious and not backward and not turning away. He is going to take the sins of the people. He's going to be brutally treated. His back is going to be struck. His beard's going to be pulled out. He's going to die, and he's going to have a borrowed tomb with the rich in his death, Isaiah says. And then he's going to see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands, and he himself will make many to be accounted righteous. I mean, it's amazing looking back from the New Testament perspective how vivid and clear it was. I know no one truly figured it out until Jesus revealed it to us. But when you go back and look, it's so clear. It's like the the box top of the puzzle pieces. You see the box top and you look back at the pieces, you go, this is so evident. So any any closing remarks as we look at all these things, Greg? Um, I want to use the illustration you you have used so many times. Like you go into a room that's dimly lit Mm. and, um, you know, you can make some sense out of things. You can feel around and you can see some things, you know, you can't see them as clearly as you could, but you're seeing them as best you can in the light that you have. And, you know, again, the Old Testament view of Christ and his work, it's not wrong. It's just not as clear as the New Testament is in terms of the light that's being shown on it. It's there the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so once the New Testament comes and, you know, Christ through the Spirit opens our eyes, all of a sudden the lights come on and we start to see it all and it makes a whole lot more sense. Um, and, I, you know, we have to remember, like, we, we can make all these connections and we can you know, go to the Old Testament and see how it's pointing to Jesus. That's only because God made that known. That's only because God taught us these things in Scripture, how to think, how to see these things, how to understand all these connections and make sense, make sense of them. And we have to remember, 
And we, we've already mentioned this. Like there was a lot of confusion around these things when Jesus mm-hmm. came. John the Baptist was confused. Uh, you know, the people were expecting one aspect of this, not the other. Um, and so only when Jesus comes and it's after his resurrection, especially Luke 24, you know, he starts teaching the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, you know, and all these things about his suffering and his glory and all that. Like that's when it finally starts to truly all come together. That's when the box top becomes clear. And like we start to see, oh, wow, we get it now. We get it now. But only because God, through the spirit, through the Word, is showing us these things and helping us make the connections. These aren't connections that we want to make, you know, just willy-nilly, oh, we think that's a nice thing to say. It sounds good. We want the text itself to drive the connections that we're making. And if the text isn't making the connections or leading us to make those connections, then we don't want to make them. But once you start to see it, like the connections that are actually in the text, it's it's just, it's amazing. And you start, you know, the, the subtitle, for that, that book by Wellman Hunter, you know, Christ from beginning to end, how the, was it the whole Bible tells the story of like the whole glory of Christ or something like that. Like, I mean, from beginning to end, it really is about Jesus um, from beginning to end. Um, even the parts that it, it, you know, you might, how is that going to be like him? How is that? It actually all points to him. And if we just let scripture lead us to understand that, then we can see it for all that, all it, all it's worth. Can you pray for us? Yeah, let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for what we've been able to see today, uh, Lord, in a very short amount of time from uh, the prophets. Lord, there's a, so much more we could look at. Um, but Lord, I pray that what we've seen is sufficient to make the case, um, God, about the centrality of the Messiah in the, the promises of the prophets and uh, their predictions about the future and, God, all that's going to happen. Uh, God, we're thankful that the covenant that you have made through Jesus is better than the covenant that Israel had because that covenant could be broken. It's blessings lost, uh, but we, as we're going to see, this new covenant that you're gonna that you make in Jesus is a covenant that cannot be broken, a covenant whose blessings cannot be lost for those who are in it, uh, and that's what makes it so much better. There's full, forever, final forgiveness of sins. There's new life. There's there's the heart that circumcision of heart and the desire for you from the inside that we have to have is what you give. You give us a king. You give us everything we need. Uh, in this new covenant. And Lord, as we've just anticipated that through through the Old Testament this week, Lord, as we continue on, Lord, help us see it in all its glory and all its light uh, as it all shines through and in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh God, we pray that our hearts would be drawn to him more and more and that he'd be more and more glorified in and through us, uh, God, because of our knowledge of him. And we just pray now as we go into the main service that you'll help us together corporately sing and pray and receive your word uh, and draw near to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.